So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the word, all right? Father, we just thank you for this opportunity. Uh, We know your word says that where two or three are gathered together, you're there in our midst. So Jesus, we know you're here. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you would tenderize our hearts, that you would move by your spirit, open us up so that we can receive your truth, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. So we thank you for these brief moments. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you guys have been in a series, uh, It's Not You, It's Me. And what a great way to kick it off with Pastor Andy. And just I've been going back and listening to his message. It's so funny um, because, you know, that is the, the classic phrase, like your way around relationships. It's not you, it's me. And, um, and when we come to this, uh, this topic today, which deals with reconciliation, um, specifically diversity, um, what we find is this same idea interwoven into the fabric of our lives. And really, at, at this period of, of history in our country, uh, gosh, what a, uh, a lightning rod of a topic. And I, I wade into these waters with great care and great, should I say, anxiety to a certain degree. <laughs> because, um, gosh, when it comes to this idea of reconciliation and relationships, but most importantly, ethnic diversity, um, let's be honest, there's some problems. Um, there's some serious problems that we're trying to, in the faith community, think through and pray through and do relationships in a way that honors God. So um, if you can go ahead and put this first slide up to kind of seed this idea and begin this, this uh, message. You know, I found this, uh, this article several years ago. And I was shocked by the headline. Uh, I mean, it was riveting. So why many Americans prefer, the operative word here, prefer their Sundays segregated. Can you believe it? Uh, Shocking. And what came out of this article is um, some very, very unique statistics that I want to share with you as we as we jump into this message. So um, there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Curtis Paul DeYoung, who actually did a lot of the research that motivated um, this uh, publication here. And he wrote a book, and uh, the, the book was all centered and focused around uh, multi-ethnic diversity as it relates to, to churches. And uh, here's some stats from him. He said only about 5% of the nation's churches are, he used this term, racially integrated. And half of them are in the process of becoming all black or all white congregations, which means that across all of Christianity in the United States, when people gather together on Sunday morning, only two and a half percent of churches have at their core this idea of ethnic diversity and reconciliation as an expression of the local church. Not just a good idea, but something that is a value, a core value. This is how we do community and what it should look like. And Dr. DeYoung's numbers are backed by many other scholars and sociologists, so he's just not way out there, some loony on a fringe. Um, This guy is deeply studied and consistent with the rest of what has been uncovered in this idea of diversity. Um, He's also an ordained minister for a period of time, actually led a congregation, a multi-ethnic congregation. And he would define multi-ethnic as 
20, as a, a demographic where there's 20% or more of another, another ethnicity that is not the predominant ethnicity. So that's how he would describe um, in this theory this idea of a multi-ethnic church. But here's what he said about his experience as a local church pastor, which is why you need to pray for your pastor as he continues to build the kind of community that I believe honors God and reflects the kingdom of God most, most appropriately. Here's what he says. So he says, I left after five years. I left the church. I abdicated my responsibilities as lead pastor after five years, and he says, I was worn out from the battles. I was worn out from the battles. And here's some of the battles and some of the challenges that came. I'm just trying to set some context for what we're about to experience in the Word of God, okay? He's worn out from the battles. What were some of those battles? This concept that he, he describes as racial fatigue, okay, which is a lack of understanding or societal tension. So there's a, obviously a tumultuous history in this country and lots of underpinnings. And people have this thing that makes them gravitate toward one another, whether it be cultural nuances or things. People just tend to group or cluster together in, peop- uh, in groups where people are like-minded. People share certain values. People share a common family background. But that creates a tension. And what happens is in the world, outside of these walls, those tensions become riots. And those tensions become protests. And those tensions become front page news. And people want to go to church to escape this racial fatigue. This idea that uh, people are at odds with one another grates on people and rubs them the wrong way and creates stress and anxiety. And when I come to church, I just want to love God and sing songs and lift my hands and not be bothered with people of other backgrounds. Because I already deal with that in the world, and man, it creates a lot of stress and anxiety for me. So could I just come to a place on Sunday morning where everybody thinks and looks and acts just like I do? Can I just be free for a moment? Gosh, the noise is so loud outside the walls of the church. I just want to come to a place where there's peace and quiet and everybody's the same. Racial fatigue. Then this other idea of power struggle. So there's a a predominant group that basically says, well, we're an authority, we're the majority group, and the other group, you know, great. I'm glad you're here, but man, you know, we think we've got this figured out. And we find this tension in churches. Then this other idea that he identifies, which is cultural worship differences. Music affects people in very unique ways. And look, if you clap on the two and the four, (laughs) if you clap on the two and the four, that's okay. And if you clap on every beat, that's okay. And if you can't keep a beat, that's okay too. But the truth is, 
that that frustrates people when they come to this community of worship and fellowship. I don't like that. I don't like when they clap on the two. I don't like when that guy just stands there and, and flails his arms. He's not really even clapping. He's just moving around. That bothers me. People have this going on. And I know I'm like exposing some stuff like it's the very uncomfortable facts of what we deal with in our souls. But that's what's happening in the church, guys. This is real life. Two and a half percent of churches that embrace this idea and find it a core value. Here's part of my story. And this is why this is such a tender issue for me and why I speak so passionately. Originally from Detroit, Michigan. Somebody said, woo, and then somebody else said, mm. So it's like, <laughs> but you know what? You're both right. How about that? Somebody gets a whoop and somebody gets a ooh. Yes. It's all of that in Detroit. It's woo and it's ugh. So grew up in Detroit during the 80s and 90s. Craziness, you know, drugs and gangs and you might get jumped for your shoes and somebody's going to take your jacket and don't leave your stuff there because it won't be there when you come back. Yeah. Grew up in that. Um, Detroit is 85% African-American. So growing up in Detroit, I didn't really have very many friends like uh, Wes and, and Pastor Andy. Just being honest with you, I didn't. Um, mostly because the demographic that I found myself in um, was not the kind of environment that yielded those kind of relationships. I would have had to force myself to assimilate or to connect with people of other ethnicities, and if I'm being honest, I didn't want to. I was very comfortable attending my black church, hanging out with all my black friends, going to school in the inner city, and just living my life. But it wasn't until I saw something in scripture that ruined me and caused me to rethink how I form relationships, and really what God is after, because he's after something. What we're talking about here is not a peripheral issue. What we're talking about here is something that is absolutely central to the gospel, central. So it wasn't until I came to the Bible and saw that this idea of reconciliation and diversity was actually a non-negotiable did I, actually, did I actually confront my own prejudice and sin and expose it before God and say, Lord, help me. Help my relationships. Help the people I spend time with. When I finally got around to accepting it and saying, oh, it's, it's not you, it's me. You know, it's just, you know, I just kind of, I'm uncomfortable. No, it, yeah, it really is. It really is you and I. Let's look at this passage of Scripture in Galatians, chapter 2, and this is, gosh, this is a really intense moment. I love the Bible because it's like real life. People argue and fight and get into stuff because it's people. Galatians 2, uh, 11 through 14. But when Cephas, now there's a gathering, let me give you a little context for this, there's a gathering of Christians, and they're coming from all over. And they come to fellowship, come to spend time together, as was quite common in the ancient world, because again, uh, the Christian view or Christian community was a minority. It was a small group. The pagan world dominated everything. 
okay? So they're coming together, <clears throat> and this is Paul recording this, uh, the Apostle Paul recording this instance. But when Cephas, and this is just the Greek name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That doesn't sound very Christianly. <laughs> I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, and James, if you remember, was the leader in Jerusalem, so from a, uh, a group that was very Hebraic in thought and activity, okay, so a lot of Jews, a lot of Jewish people, and let's keep in mind also that Jewish is not just a religion, it is an ethnic identification. So this is an ethnic issue. The Jews and the Gentiles meeting in one place. And here's what we see. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, the unclean people, the people that you don't want to spend your time and mess with. And, you know, this was weird. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. So Peter is sitting and eating with the Gentiles. And then when the folks, when the Hebrews, when the Jews show up, then he separates himself. Oh, yeah, these guys, I don't, I don't want to sit with them. Come over here. So he says, fearing the circumcision party. Now, here's, this is something interesting about this passage. Is the circumcision party, I don't know if you've ever heard of this term, term Judaizers. Okay, so Judaizers were people who believed that it was the gospel plus whatever was in the Mosaic law. So during this time, this early time in Christianity, people were trying to decide, okay, what actually makes you a part of this faith? And a lot of people had a hard time with, as we often do, the simplicity of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It's just Jesus. It's just faith. And all the Jews are like, what are you talking about? Yes, Jesus plus this law and that law and what you eat and you don't eat. You don't go here. You don't touch that. And you wear this kind of clothes and you wash your hands a certain number of times. It's that too, right? No. Just Jesus. Fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, with Peter. So that even Barnabas... Another very important, influential leader in the early church, Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, if you've received freely the grace and pardon of God that allows you to live in that liberty and experience his blessing, why then would you condemn or place a yoke on someone else when you've received that free grace? And here's where we start to see underneath the skin, if you will, of our lives. We're people of double standards. We're people that want to be excused and freed and judged upon our intentions, but not on our actions. 
However, we tend to judge people based upon the very thing that we excuse ourselves from. And Paul sees this and he confronts it, but I love the way that he confronts it. He doesn't say, you're not being a good humanitarian. He doesn't say you're not being ethnically tolerant. He doesn't say you're not being politically correct. He says you're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. That cuts a little different. Because what he's saying is it's not about you being a good person. It's about you understanding the gospel and the forgiveness that God gives everyone. And when you miss that, you miss something key as it relates to diversity and ethnic reconciliation. You miss it. You miss it. And we see this fear in Peter. Fear gripped him. But it was fear of people. It was not fear from God. It was fear of people. How they dress, how they look, what they eat. You know, why are they over there? Why are they gathering together? Uh, I, was, I, was la- I was laughing to myself because I'm, I'm sitting there listening to Pastor Andy's uh, his, uh, his podcast, and he said that he eats stuffing for, for Thanksgiving. I don't eat stuffing. I eat dressing. Somebody said, did somebody say Amen. If you grew up in the African-American community, you didn't eat stuffing, you eat dressing. What is that? Boo, dressing. What is dressing, bro? Come on, get your stuffing life on. Um, but I was just, I was so tickled as I listened to him share that story. Because I'm like, even down to the most silly minutiae. There are things that would seemingly divide us. Just silly stuff. Like, what you eat for Thanksgiving? Uh, what, what they, uh, if somebody ever invites you to Thanksgiving, and then you say, like, hey, what they serving? <laughs> right? You got you to gotta know what's going to be on the table. But what happens when stuffing's on the table? What happens when green bean casserole is on the table? I just got baptized in the green bean casserole in the last few years. I'd never known what green bean casserole, what is green, what is this thing? It's green beans and like bread stuff and there's juice in, in, on the green beans. What is that? But I got broken in. I've been delivered. Hallelujah. I received the green bean casserole blessing. Maybe you need the blessing of dressing in your life. Maybe you need some blessing of collards in your life and some neck bones. Receive it. Receive your blessing. <clears throat> so back to important Bible stuff. All right. So fear, hypocrisy, we see these things just permeating this situation. And it's making Paul sick. 
so sick that he has to say something. And he takes it upon himself not to just say something, but to call the man out in front of everybody. This is embarrassing. But for good reason, because he's trying to embellish this point of this is a gospel issue, Peter. A gospel issue. Do we see it that way? Do we see our relationships and how we build relationships as actually being a gospel issue? Or do we excuse that part of our life and we say, no, the gospel issue is when we pray and we read the Bible and we come and sing songs and we clap our hands and then we all go home and back to our own groups of people that we like and spend most of our time with. Because if we saw it as a gospel issue, then before God, there would be this holy indignation, this unrest, this thing in us that says, I refuse to do life without Pastor Andy. I refuse to build a music community without Wes and Callie. I refuse. I won't do it. It's not going to happen because this is a gospel issue. So let me, let me make a disclaimer. I'm getting ready to say something that might be controversial. Is it going to be okay? <laughs> um, so, um, so there have been a lot of very key influential people. We're in the month of February, obviously Black History Month. Very, very key influential people who've made some very significant contributions um, to the, the freedoms that we all experience, that we all enjoy. And I'm sure... If I pull, you know, let me just do it just for fun. Um, brother, don't be, don't be scared. It's going to be all right. <laughs> don't be scared, bro. It's all right, bro. Seriously, like, it's going to be all right. <laughs> let me just pull you. Just throw a couple names out there. You know, we're in Black History Month. Just throw some names out there of influential people who've been involved in the, the liberation and the freedoms that we see in our country. Just throw a couple names out. I love that you said Michael Jordan. You know what? Because he broke down them basketball walls. Frederick Douglass, okay. Harriet Tubman. Jackie Robinson, wow. MLK, right? So we got, and you could probably throw, yeah, Muhammad Ali, you could throw out, gosh, you could throw Abraham Lincoln. You could throw some other names out, Rosa Parks and, and on. Nelson Mandela, right? And you know, what I find is this is usually how we think about this idea of ethnic reconciliation. We, we extol virtues of people throughout history who ultimately have ex- exemplified this idea of bringing people together and bringing walls down. But you know what I find interesting is very few times when I poll people do they ever say Jesus. Ever. It actually has never happened. I've actually never had this kind of conversation and said, hey, who, influ- who, who deeply impacted this idea of reconciliation? No one ever says Jesus. And here's the mistake that we make when we don't identify Jesus. Every person that you just named, they're flawed and fallible and human, which means that none of them can perfectly exemplify the very values that they hold. But there's one who can. Only one. 
There's only one true liberator who by his blood conquered death, hell, the grave, division, dissension, all of it. There's only one. So because we've become conditioned to look at these people and to not look to the cross, then we find this thing in us where we're still unsettled and we still have yet to identify the place where we find true rest from all of our relational weariness, especially as it relates to ethnic reconciliation and diversity. And what Paul starts in the book of Galatians, he expounds upon this idea in the book of Ephesians, and I'm going to land with this, these final points here. So go to Ephesians. <clears throat> do you have that for, for us? Okay, so we're going to do chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 11, and we're going to go to verse 18, okay? So now Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus. He says, therefore, remember that you at one time, uh, at one time, you Gentiles... In the flesh, and I have any Gentiles here? My hands up. <laughs> so this is actually applicable to all of us, unless you might be Jewish. I don't want to dismiss that. <laughs> Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What, is, what a most hopeless state of affairs that we find ourselves in. Without hope and without God in the world. Bad news. But now in Christ, you who, were once, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, speaking of Jews and Gentiles. And all the Gentiles said, amen. The Gentiles, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, put that next picture up. The dividing wall of hostility. When Paul used this term in this context, everybody would have stood up and paid attention. And here's why. Because this wasn't just a, you know, kind of an idea, some kind of metaphor he was using. There, this idea was actually in living proof on the pillars of the temple. The place of worship for Jewish people. And this is what it looked like. It would be a big, tall pillar, and there would be an inscription. And this was the dividing wall of hostility in the ancient world. And here's basically what it says. Anyone who enters this place will come in by pain of death. Meaning that there was a place for Gentiles to hang out, but if Gentiles passed this place into this other place of worship, they would enter by pain of death, the dividing wall of hostility. Remember, that wasn't just spiritual, but was ethnic. 
Jews in here, Gentiles out here. But thank God that we see, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, Jesus, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. I love these intense words, killing hostility, smashing it, destroying it, reducing it to nothing. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So here's the reality. And this is where I had to open up and confess my prejudices and biases and faults and weird ideas and concepts of all kinds of people. Because I realized, again, guys, that this was not something that people just marched for because of the indignation and the unjust treatment of people. But when Jesus hung on the cross, when he was nailed, when his back was stripped of flesh with the stripes that he received, he was thinking about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation being united as one man. And I thank God for Dr. King, and I thank God for Frederick Dulles, and I thank God for Jackie Robinson and Rosa Parks, and the list, there's hundreds, there's people who've given their lives and blood, sweat, and tears and have died to see the freedoms, to see the relationships, to see a, an environment where this room can exist without blows and gunfights and cursing and profane names. But there's no one greater than Jesus. That the one who bled and died for you and who was resurrected with all power gave you and I the spirit of God that this community might be expressed in its fullness. One of the greatest miracles our country needs right now is this. I would even say that this is like raising the dead. People always talk, I want to see the spirit of God. I want to see the spirit move. and I want to see the dead raised. And I want to see all legs grow out and stuff that happens in Africa. And I want to see somebody's broken finger come back in place. And I want to see all this stuff by the power of God. You know what we need the power of God for? For our relationships to be changed. For this curse that's been hanging over this country for generations to be broken by the power of Jesus and by the power 
that comes by the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. But as we pray, this is a you and Jesus moment. This is your opportunity to open up your heart and to confess. You're not confessing in front of me and no one's going to confront you like Paul did, Peter. (laughs) But Jesus is confronting you. Jesus is asking you, would you give me that? That word that somebody spoke over you that wounded you so deeply that you alienated that people group, would you give me that? Would you give me that headline that's been resonating in the back of your mind about the political and social unrest? Would you give me that? You've been ruminating on that. You've been drinking from that well, and it's poisoned. Would you give me that and let my word come in there? These are the questions that in this moment as we pray, I just want you to open up and ask, Lord, is there any offensive way in me? Have I allowed the social injustice and politics to rule me more than my Savior? Lord, help us. Lord, I pray for all of us. Lord, that you would open our hearts and do the surgery that only you can do by your spirit. Remove the cancer, God. There's a cancer growing in us, growing in our country, a cancer that wants to destroy the fabric of community. It's called sin. Lord, and we take responsibility for the ways that we've sinned against you. The biases that have festered. The things that we've held on to for years. The things that we've let perpetuate in our family lines. The conversations that we've been a part of in private where we've said things and done things that don't honor you and aren't in step with the truth of the gospel. Forgive us, God, and breathe upon us by your Spirit so that we can be empowered to reflect the kind of community that you've always desired, the kind of community that you bled and died for, that the nations would stand before your throne and call you holy and call you worthy in their own language. Will they call you holy? In their own cultural context, will they call you holy and worthy? Or you're not after something homogenous and monolithic. You're after something diverse. Help us, God. And I pray, God, that this church would be a signpost of the kingdom in the days to come. That you would grace Pastor Andy, grace this team, grace these worshipers, God to know you, and to build those kind of relationships, to fight for them, to say it's unacceptable for me to walk without my brother and my sister who don't think like me, look like me, act like me, dress like me, eat what I eat. 
I refuse to do it. Let that boldness rise up by the Spirit of God. We thank you for it. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.